investing in shares, maybe you want to buy some ETFs, you've definitely got a superannuation account. Well, these things, they do form a big part of the personal finance scene and your life. But also when you step back, they can also be seen as a small part because you've also got property that you might want to purchase, your career, you might have other lifestyle goals that aren't strictly money related. But today we are talking about the holy trinity, shares, ETFs, and superannuation. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Rebecca Pritchard. She's a financial advisor at Rising Tide. Thanks for joining us today, Beck. Thank you for having me. Now, we can't do this episode without the help of Sphere Home Loans. When you're in mortgage land, valuation of your property makes a huge difference to your interest rate and what options you have for lenders. Valuations can also change between lenders. So having a great mortgage broker is so key to getting the most appropriate mortgage set up. Because when it comes to valuations, it steps into the LVR category, loan to value ratio. Now, the higher your LVR is, so the higher the loan to the value of the property, there's more risk there for the bank. But if you've got more value and less loan, it's less risk for the bank. So generally, the lower the LVR, the better interest rate you'll get. Now, I've seen cases where uh, a broker has done two different valuations with two different lenders, and they've been wildly different. So it's always important to speak with a broker when you are looking at a home loan. Beck, have you used a broker much before? Absolutely. Never buy a property without a broker. Well, there you go. You've heard it here first. We should just end the podcast right now. Beck's word is final, but we are going to have a chat. My name's Glenn James, and this is Money. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Radio, here's a juicy one. I'm just going to throw it to Beck. Nalisha said in the Facebook group, I have some individual stocks and two ETFs. She's got BetaShares NASDAQ 100 and Vanguard High Yield. I've now started to invest the same amount on the same day every month in my ETFs. I could continue doing this or get a third ETF that complements the ones I already have. Any suggestions? She went on to say, any thoughts on Vanguard High Yield? No one ever talks about it, so I'm a bit worried. Smash or pass? Well, that's, it's funny. Um, Smash or pass, that means all or nothing. Doesn't always have to be all or nothing. But just speaking to the the Vanguard Australian Shares High Yield ETF, uh, like, do you have any high-level comments for Nalisha? Well, firstly, well done to Alicia for getting investing and investing regularly. It's impressive, anyone who's organised enough to be doing this on on the reg. But if you take a step back, I would think about what yield actually means. So when we think about return, it's generally made up of yield plus capital growth. Capital growth is the sexy stuff that people refer to with your shares or your property growing in value, whereas yield is the fancy name for income. So a portfolio that's high yield could be perfect if you're wanting to get income, but if you're busting your gut trying to get capital growth, then it might not cut the mustard. Mm. 
Yeah, and I think the reason why a lot of people don't talk about this fund online is in financial planning, high-yield portfolios are usually for pension phase or retirement age because by default, yield is income. And if you have stopped working and you have a pile of money that you want to invest, sure, I want income from that more than I want to smash or pass a a, a single stock that's going to the moon and doesn't pay dividends, right? So my own view on this is if you have a look at the underlying core holdings in the high yield ETF, the top one, two, three, four, five holdings in the high yield is BHP, 10%, CBA, National Australia Bank, West Farmers and Westpac. And then the top five holdings of the VAS, which is the top 300 Australian listed companies, is BHP 11%, so there's 1% difference there. Uh, Commonwealth Bank of Australia, 8%. CSL, 5.96. NAB and Westpac. Now, if you look at the the portfolio, the fee of the high-yield ETF is 0.25%, where the VAS uh, A300 is 0.07, which aka is basically free. I would hypothesize, and I want to bounce this off my financial advisor friend here, if you had the high-yield ETF and the distributions that you get from that ETF each quarter, you just reinvested into that same high-yield ETF, right? Running parallel to the A300 ASX, that sure, you are still going to get some yield because there's a lot of underlying companies. The the skew to income-producing dividend stocks is higher in that index, which is why the index is more expensive because less people might use it and blah, 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 blah. I would suspect at the end of the journey, all roads would lead to Rome-ish or at least Italy. I think you're pretty close to the money there, Glenn. Australian shares relative to other markets are really high-yielding stocks, particularly those uh, the big ones at the top where you know that they make up a good chunk of that index. So there's certainly a lot of overlap between that. Uh, there's there's some nuance still, like there's a reason why the high yield is more expensive than the Australian shares, but is it material? And depending on how old Alicia is, what she's investing for, what she's trying to achieve, may not be the best bang for a buck. Yeah. I can't speak for Alicia, but I can speak for myself with great authority. I personally don't have an Australian high yield ETF in my own portfolio. <laughs> But you probably have exposure to a lot of the same companies in a slightly different twisted version of an index. Yeah, absolutely. So I I don't think we need to split hairs over this, uh, but I think that's probably a couple of reasons why it's not talked about a lot, uh, Nalisha, because it is a higher fee. You do have most of the exposure that you get uh, in the A200 anyway, or the A300 even. Uh, And I I will say, funnily enough, a friend of mine, Nick Bradley, who hosts our investor podcast, This Is Investing, we've just submitted the book to the publisher that we're writing that's out later this year, just dropping some ads there, why not? And uh, he basically, I think he wrote in the book, he's like, it's funny when you look at the ASX 200, it's like a, um, a dual sector fund of banks and coal miners and like iron ore miners. Like that's basically what Australia is. Banks Australia is very and holes boring. And some CSL. Uh, so we are a, basically a, a single or double sector fund in Australia. 
Hey, there's another question here. Uh, I've certainly got a view on these options, but I, I want your view. Uh, Stan said, super question. And I think he means superannuation. He might mean super duper. Super exciting. Uh, super exciting. The Vanguard super lifestyle option is a high growth phase until age 48 with a 90-10 split. After that, it becomes more defensive each year. My question is whether age 48 is too early to start going defensive. Should I just select their high growth fund, also a 90-10, and just leave it in there for longer? I mean, at the risk of this being an advertisement for Vanguard, which it's not, but if they want to spend money with me, we will advertise them. What's your view, generally speaking, Stan's question aside, on these life cycle funds? I think these life cycle funds have been a great innovation for the lowest common denominator, right? That's a person who checks in once a generation on their superannuation, clicks a button, ticks a box on a form, and that's it. Uh, If you have enough now to be asking this question that Stan is asking. He's probably not in that bucket and therefore something else is going to is gonna fit the bill. Mm. Yeah, my own view of these funds, going through the uh, GFC, Royal Commission and all that stuff, they were primarily a product designed, I believe, for risk mitigation for superannuation trustees. So like you said, if someone checks on their super once a millennium, and they turn around and they're age 60, ready to retire, well, at least they haven't had, you know, 90% of their funds in growth and they just happen to retire on the year that there's the GFC and the funds reduced by 40%. So for the ordinary listener of this podcast, and I would even hypothesize anyone well under 55, you do not want, I think, any less than 20% defensive in your portfolio for super. On the flip side as well, even if you're 60, 65, you know, you could have 30 years plus in front of you, in which case, if you think about uh, investment horizons, that still correlates to a high growth portfolio. So definitely not advocating for loading up 100% high growth when you're 65, but growth has a role to play in Mm. managing what we call longevity risk. Yeah, it's interesting because, and I don't suspect you guys do many pre-retirees and retirees at Rising Tide, do you? No, but I've been helping my nana, who's 92, with her finances lately. And, yeah. you know, I'm thinking about these things. <laughs> we've geared nana up. We've, we've got a margin loan. We're, we're going, we're not even doing the high yield Australian ETF for nan. We're going to town, nan. Um, but like, all, all that to say, once you are 60, like, There is this myth out there that once I retire, quote unquote, my superannuation just lands in my bank account. Like, here's $500,000 cash. No, no, no. The the money still needs to work for the next 20 years. It still needs to work. Or longer. Or longer. Yeah. If you're thinking about the average life expectancy, we're talking mid to late 80s for both men and women in Australia. If you've made it to 60 or 65 in the first place, you've got a very, very high probability of pushing past 90. Mm. And so if you are too conservative with your money, there's actually a really high chance that you're going to outlive it. Mm. And so you have to think about risk strategically so that that longevity risk doesn't bite you in the bum. I would also say... If you are knocking on 50's door and you think that you might have a 10-year runway left of really cranking your career, 
it's probably a good time to start an advice discussion within the next five years with a financial advisor because that's when, you know, I've I've always said this, if I was ever to get back into financial advice, it would be pre-retirement and retirement advice because there is the most that you can do in terms of strategy, fun, awesomeness when it comes to those magical, you know, dates like 60, 65, retiring, Mm -hmm. transitioning and all that stuff. So there is just so much opportunity to do. And I will say, everyone, this coming Thursday, if you listen to this podcast live, our podcast Retire Right relaunches and it will be every single Thursday for at least the next 10 to 15, 20 weeks, at least. We've got a heap of episodes in the bank. We've got a heap on schedule. So I want you to subscribe to Retire Right have a listen. Even if you're not in your 50s, listen because this stuff can be in the back of your head still. And also if you've got parents, grandparents, and you want them to do better with their money, show them how to use podcasts if they don't already and let us tell them about money, not you. Outsource it to us. So it's a fascinating thing, these life stage funds. Absolutely. Now, do you do show notes? Mm -hmm. So there was a really interesting article in the AFR last week, which was talking about the sweet spots of when compounding is your friend when it comes to superannuation and, you know, actually works through the numbers of going like, don't sweat it if it takes you until your 30s, until you've got 50 grand in super, like the sweet spots where it runs away are actually in the later years. So it could be an interesting one. Mm. Hey, do you want to read the next question? Okay. Prathap says, hi, all. Just wanted to apply for an IPO, but couldn't find the link at first. I then contacted Comsec and found that to apply for that IPO, I would need to have an asset base of $2.5 million or an income of 250 grand. Obviously, I was not eligible, bit sad and angry. Have you guys been in the same situation before? Yeah, so there was heaps of commentary in the Facebook group. Just some key terminology. What's an IPO, Beck? An initial public offering. So this is when a private company is listing on the stock exchange and Joe Blow can generally buy shares in either that first offering or secondary market once it's listed. So you've done a little bit of research around this question because it is quite juicy once we get into it. Can you tell us why these guidelines are in place from ASIC? So ASIC, God bless them, are trying to put this framework in place to protect people from biting off more than they can chew. So it's saying like, hey, if you don't know your way around a financial statement, if you don't know what an IPO stands for, there's a good chance that this probably isn't for you. So these frameworks exist they're defined as a sophisticated investor. Mm, fancy. Mm, very fancy. Uh, and it's it's designed to distinguish the, the layperson from the person that, in theory, should know what they're doing with their money. What's interesting as a financial advisor, and Glenn, you and I were talking about this a little bit beforehand, is you technically just need to hit um, those those thresholds. So it's an income level and an asset level. And let's be honest, there are plenty of people who earn above $250,000 or who have assets above 2.5 mil, <clears throat> anyone who owns a house in Sydney. And, and so it's not particularly hard to hit those thresholds without really having any clue about financial management. 
So this is interesting because there's actually legislation being put forward at the moment to change this. So if you're interested in financial media, this has been very topical in the last couple of weeks because there's talking about lifting these thresholds quite considerably. So we're talking about going up to $450,000 and $4.5 million of assets. So it's definitely going into the arena of moving it away from the person who fluked it because they have a good uh, income from their job or they've got a couple of properties behind them into genuinely have done a couple of things right to accumulate that. Yeah, and in the background, when uh, companies go to retail investors uh, with the prospectus and you know pre-IPO disclosure documents, there's a lot more rigor that those companies um, and you know the people that list companies have to go through uh, because there are consumer protections um, if they go down that road. But with sophisticated investors, the way they see it is like if you look at the current rate of two hundred and fifty thousand dollar income per year. If someone was to invest $25,000 into an IPO and that um, IPO tanked and they lost their money, right? That $25,000, if you've got an income of two fifty dollars or an asset pool of over $2.5 million, it's really insignificant. However, if you think if someone who wasn't quote unquote a sophisticated investor and Prathap might be sophisticated and know it all, but he just doesn't meet their definition, what can happen is if someone was like, oh, I'm going to put $10,000 in this IPO and they might might earn $80,000 a year, that could be their whole savings. And if the IPO goes sideways or it doesn't go or it tanks, you've lost a whole heap of your relative net worth. So I'm okay with these protections. And then he went on to say, a bit sad and angry. Have you guys been in the same situation? So look, I have been in this situation. I actually um, had to do one of these declarations. And how it practically works is I was buying some convertible notes. Now, what convertible notes are, uh, it's a fancy way to say it's an agreement, almost kind of like an option But I put money in to buy convertible notes in a company that was private, not listed. And then what happened was they said, if you give us uh, money for these convertible notes, in 12 months time, we will list this company and you'll get shares in the company at a 20% discount or something wild, right? However, if we don't list by this time, they will pay 10% over the 12 months for interest, right? Now, this is for sophisticated investors, which is sometimes the Wild West, right? So I had to go to my accountant and my accountant had to uh, effectively sign off that I met the criteria to do this convertible note. So I did that. And the funny thing was, a year later, we're coming up to the date and the company said, oh, we're not listing anymore and we're not paying interest. But what they did say, and this is where it's like the fine print and all that stuff, we'll pay your money back or you can continue and proceed and hold shares in a company that will have no revenue and not be trading. So we'll honor the convertible note. So in you know next month, you'll get shares in this company, but this company is never listing and it's not trading. So it was basically like saying, hey, you can have your money back with no interest or you can still proceed 
and have shares in this company that won't trade. It was something to that effect. So it is a little bit Wild West. Uh, so I'm just like, I give me my money back. And that enters the conversation uh, when you are doing this speculative stuff, there is higher risk and higher reward. Now, for the year that my money was, quote unquote, sitting in their bank account, it wasn't earning interest. So I didn't get any interest for the year. You know, it wasn't in my share portfolio, maybe getting 12% that year. So it's just on the other side of the coin, it is that whole the rich get richer because you've got access to these deals that, yeah, if you buy units in this and this convertible note and it converts, when it lists, you'll get shares at 20% market discount. So it's, it is an ecosystem. I mean, it is regulated to a point, but it is a lot more Wild West when you step over that threshold of um, sophisticated investor because they don't have to provide as much um, in the due diligence to sophisticated investors. And it's not to say that you can't invest in IPOs. So IPOs that are, as you said, Glenn, issuing prospectus to a retail investor. You know, I think I was like 18 when I invested in my first IPO and I definitely was not qualifying as a sophisticated investor back then. Um, So it it doesn't mean the door is closed on a um, public offering. It just means that you're not going to get access to these behind the scenes or wholesale opportunities. Um, Mm. That might be disappointing, but it also might be okay. Another factor as well, what they want to do with the admin of these things is it's easier for them to deal with 10 people giving $10,000 than 100 people giving $1,000. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit more less admin if you've got less people giving lots of money than lots of people giving smaller amounts. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's a very interesting question. And I would just say... Prathap, I want you to step back and everyone else listening to this, with our investing, you need to have rules in your life. Well, I believe you can do what you want. Um, So for me, for example, Beck, I don't put more than 10% of my equity portfolio in uh, startup, alternatives, alternatives, Wild West stuff. Uh, I've got two angel investments out there at the moment. One of them we've spoken about on this podcast. It's a, a cleaning business called Future State. Um, they did a raise last year. I threw some money in and threw some money as in, I don't even remember. It was under 5,000. It may have been four or five, may have been three. I don't even remember. Like So these, when I do this stuff, I actually do it with, in my world, superficial amounts of money because I know that if it goes to the moon, and it's funny, I'm ranting on this fact because literally this morning, I finished a chapter in our investing book on this. Like if if you put $10,000, we'll call it $1,000, right, into an investment and it triples, sure, you've made $3,000, but it's still not life-changing. For it to be life-changing, you'd have to put $100,000 or $150,000 in, but you just would never risk that. So this is why our investing, it can't be the solution to be the answer of all our problems. We have to just go to work, enjoy what we do, spend less than we earn, keep out of debt and park the rest in broad-based markets to grow over time. Mm -hmm. I think it was in one of your podcasts last week where John was banging on about consistency being sexy. I don't think he used those exact words. I'm paraphrasing, but consistency is so sexy and vanilla is a great flavour and Mm. that's, that's where the magic happens. Yeah. I mean, if you don't like vanilla bean connoisseur ice cream, you need to see a doctor. 
it's not the podcast for you. No, this is not the podcast just turn, for you. Just turn, just turn it off. <laughs> That's right. Hey, uh, any other rounding thoughts? I don't know if you want to jump in and cycle on any of my comments around that investing. And Well, interesting, actually, because this is one of the dialogues that's coming out of these, these changes because there's a lot of people talking about this who perhaps wouldn't normally engage in financial media, which is the startup community or entrepreneurs, because you're saying you put in a few thousand dollars to support this business in a seed round or um, in a raise. And so potentially if you if the thresholds are changing for being a fancy investor, it's potentially taking away money from these organisations um, in an already hyper-competitive environment and there's just talk around like what is the flow on impact or unintended impact of innovation, entrepreneurship in Australia if you just squash this and be like, no money mm. for you. Mm. Yeah, I'm just – so I think I did it through one of those sites like Virtual or I have done. I did another uh, financial planning industry one. Did you ever hear of that insurance business life bid or something like that? They wanted mm-hmm. – yeah, I they did an IPO or a funding round last year and – a friend of mine was putting money in it, and I basically only did it for FOMO, um, which is All not a strategy. solid investment choices <laughs> come from FOMO. <laughs> However, I've got strict uh, guide rails in my life, and I don't think it was more than ten thousand dollars. So. It's all was, relative. It it's all, all relative, relative, everyone. Um, and you know, I'm just having a look here on um, virtual. What they do with this crowdfunding stuff. And I actually don't know enough. I know enough to be dangerous generally in my life and with this podcast. But I think what they do first, they've got this. Um, so I'm on virtual. There's a company here, uh, Fremantle Seaweed Proprietary Limited. Uh, let's click it. It's a food and beverage one. And they've got an expressions of interest now open. So I think what they do is they just throw it out there and be like, hey, is there any interest in investing in um, Fremantle? A seaweed solution to climate change. Since 2020, it has been our mission to grow seaweed to fight climate change. I've actually heard of these guys. Uh, And it provides sustainable food source. Seaweed can address two of the biggest challenges of our time, uh, reducing GHC, GHG emissions, don't know what they are, sound bad, and providing food securities for a growing population, blah, blah, blah. So, the the world's biggest issues, blah, blah, blah. so I think what they do, they, they'll throw it out there. Let's see if, you know, throw the flag up the hill, see if we had any interest. The interest at the time of recording closes in 13 days. And then I think what they do is maybe go to the next round and be like, all right, everyone, put your money up, crowdfunding away. But that's not an IPO, is it? No, it's not. And I'm not recommending this investment on seaweed, but I will say I went to a seaweed farm end of last year and it was so much more fascinating than I ever thought it was going to be. And look, I think it's got it's got some of the answers for climate okay. change. This, this is wild. So we're going to Perth for our property event. I'm going over, I think, the Friday before the Tuesday. I might, I don't know how far, how far is Fremantle from Perth, anyone? Whatever, I'm going there. It's, it's reasonable. Okay, probably won't go there, but I'm <laughs> I'm going to check it out. In fact, I might put some money in for lols. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the one I went to in Tassie is Sea Forest. It was brilliant. It was about right. using the the something something, the blah blah blah, from the seaweed to take some of the like methane out of cows when you feed this to them instead. So, mm. you know, 
I'm here for it. Should we talk about another one on this virtual website just for fun? Oh okay, <laughs> here we go. Here we go. Oh, oh my gosh. There's a non-alcoholic beer. Whoever would have thought? <gasps> um, so this that one might is... have legs. Yeah. Or not. Um, it would have legs, actually. wouldn't be that legless drinking this. Um, it's called Beneficial Beer Co. Non-alcoholic beer that's brewed for humankind. Dun, dun, dun. It's in Sydney. Okay, so the round is open... And they've got 178 investors. Let's let's do the maths on this. Averages are terrible, but we'll do it. 178. At the moment, they've got $475,000 raised. Yeah, 2600 So the average of this crowdfunding, you know, could be a couple of grand each. But anyway, like all this stuff, these aren't IPOs. These are just like, they. I think they call them like seed rounds or first round. So like I could basically get the podcast company here and go, oh, I want to raise. I'll give you three grand, Glenn. Yeah. Yeah. Take three grand off every listener, you know, and get $6,000 and then give them some shares in the company so we can grow the business. And then maybe one day, once we really grow and get funding, then we can do an IPO and then rinse and repeat. So it's a fascinating world. As I said, I'm not allergic to money. I love it love getting good return on money, all that stuff. But you've just got to have guardrails in your life so you don't do stupid things. That's going to be relative to your situation. And you recognise the risk and return, you know, exchange and you find a way to take appropriate risk. And the thing is with the IPO versus this um, crowdfunding stuff that we've just been looking at, if you put you know, that three or five grand that I put into the future state cleaning product thing, right? There is probably a 99% chance I might not see $1 return for five years. So it really has to get to the point where you are doing this out of a little bit of portfolio diversification within your uh, benchmarks and your own guidelines. But again, I'm not putting five grand in a startup that's going to be illiquid for five years might not ever get a cent back. They might not make it. And that's the risk that I'm willing to take. Generally, when we go up the risk reward spectrum, the higher the risk, the higher the return, but the higher the chance of non-success as well. A lot of people don't realise that. Well, same with IPOs, even as a retail investor. I think last time I looked at the stats, it was like 50-50. Like you're flipping a coin on day one where your company lists if if it goes up or down. And of yeah. course, it could go up a smidge or a lot. It can go down a smidge or a lot. Yeah. Um, I have zero from one in terms of successful personal IPOs. Um, mm. I bought Maya shares <laughs> because I was like, I shop at Maya. Yeah. I, I mean, this is a great, great business. The, yeah. My local Maya at Northland's great. Um, off you go. And, you know, eventually cut my losses in that one. And I was looking at Maya's sh- uh, share price the other day and I was like, that was a good call, Rebecca, actually, just to yeah. walk away from that. <laughs> but I was thinking, I'm like, oh, might be a bit of a bargain now. Anyway, that's another story. Mm. But in terms of you know, just recognising IPO does not guarantee cashola and cha-ching, it's still risk. It is, and it's concentrated because it's a single stock. Absolutely. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the community segment of the week. We'll be back right after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Radio, we are back and we're badder than ever. If you've just jumped in someone's car and they're listening to this podcast, you're listening to Glenn James and Rebecca Pritchard from Rising Tide. She's a financial advisor. She's been on the show before over the years and we welcome her back. Hey, uh, we asked you in the Facebook group, which is the Facebook group has now changed to This Is Money, share a money-related goal you've set for 2024 and how you will work towards it. That's interesting as well because we've all got goals, but unless it's mapped out as a plan, it's basically a cute thought or a wish, right? Yeah, you should get some stationery for that. Absolutely. Uh, Natasha, regular contributor to the Facebook group, we probably need to get you on to do a, an episode and tell your story, Natasha, because I always see your name pop up. Natasha, Lisa, I want to put $50 away a fortnight so in 10 years I can do a Christmas at Disney World for my son and I. That's awesome. So Inga says, staying firm with my budget and holding myself accountable. Solid financial basics there. Imagine what the world would look like if we all did that. Eliza, well, it was to smash my car loan out, but as we've become a one-income family out of no fault of our own, it'll be rebuild the emergency fund. Hey, at least you've had the emergency fund. Damn it, but grateful we had our emergency fund and can stay afloat. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Amen. (sighs) Someone needs to hear this. <laughs> when you go through emergencies, use your emergency fund. You're allowed to. People are like, oh, I don't want to use it. I don't want to use it. It's an it's emergency. Not that no. is success. It's what it's there for. Like I was talking to my cousin once, went through some issues and had insurance. And she said, oh, I don't want to claim on the insurance. I'm like, that's exactly why you have it. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wenna says, donate 10% of my earnings to charity and those in need. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And Jay Sini, he's a regular pest in the Facebook group. And he was actually on the This Is Property podcast the other day, a couple of weeks ago, sharing his property story. His goal for this year, 600K in revenue for the business and a $4 million net worth. I have chunked the business revenue down into monthly and weekly targets to have a clear achievement metric and I need property to go up by 7%. So a little smiley face there. Yes. <laughs> Let's gather around. So, I mean, that there could be confronting for people to hear that someone might have a target uh, for a net worth of $4 million. I just want everyone to know you can have whatever goal you want if you're a listener of this podcast or if you are part of our group. This is money on Facebook. But I would say if I could have a rant, 
chill out and make sure you're a generous person along the way. There's a lot of people that are worse off than you are in this world. I'm not just talking to Jane, I'm talking to anyone. Um, don't be all about the greedy's good, capitalism baby, pew, pew, pew. Like slow down, have a plan, help people out along the way. That's all I'm asking. Be generous financially, if you can, if you're in a position to. Some housekeeping uh, this week. The Sort Your Property Out book is available to purchase. Um, it's perfect for first home buyers or investors. This book is a handbook for investing in property in a smart and strategic way. Now, it is out at the end of February. However, someone messaged me the other day, Beck, and they're like, oh, if I order it now, when do I get it? I'm like, look, to be honest, when they get shipped to the shops, a lot of the shops just put them out. Amazon or Booktopia, they might just send them as soon as they get the stock. So I'm like, one, I don't know, but two, basically any time from now. Just check it out. Yeah. And we were told that uh, they will be sold in Big W as well. So if you're uh, driving to the supermarket at the moment or the shopping center and you want to pick up a copy, uh, you can jump into Big W, uh, sort your property out, will be sold there. We're also going on tour. We're doing shows in Bris Vegas, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, and Perth. Uh, and John's going to do a property seminar and we're not recording it for the podcast. There are still some tickets for sale. Uh, the first 25 tickets to each event will get a free copy of the book. Uh, they're all gone, those tickets. Uh, but please, if you do want to go, jump on now and buy your ticket. A couple of reasons why. We need to know how many people are coming um, to plan and cater this properly in terms of the drink packages and all that. And two, I'm sick of people messaging me the day before when it's sold out saying, is there any chance of more tickets? No, there isn't this year. I've had it. <laughs> You've had notice. If you're hearing this on the night of Perth and it's your first podcast episode ever, I'm sorry. Next time. <laughs> Raise your standards. I like it. Yeah. Can you read the next housekeeping announcement around the book club? Because I need a drink because I'm still getting over this um, head cold. So we're starting a book club and you're welcome to join us. We'll pick one book each month and read it at the same time, then chat about it in the Facebook group. So I love books. The pick for February is Thanks for the Feedback by Douglas Stone and Sheila Heen. Have you mm. read this yet? No, I'm not okay. interested in anyone's feedback. Early, it's early <laughs> Feb. You've got time. That's right. Um, all good. No, I... Um, it's just a bit of an experiment we're trying and, you know, Jess in the team here, she's like total like book person and we just wanted to try it and suggest some things to read. So, Apart from John's book, what was the last book you read? Oh, it was uh, a little bit TMI. Um, what was it? <laughs> Mating Captivity by Esther Perel? No, no, no. It was um, Resilience, The Science of Mastering Life's Greatest Challenges. How very zen. Yeah, it was good just to work on yourself, right? We're not finished until the first person's throwing some dirt in the ground on your coffin. Like, at that point, you're finished. Until then, you've got to keep working on yourself. Okay, Lucy asked, Hi, I have a question and would like to hear people's responses. Is the only reason people invest in shares instead of their superannuation due to wanting to use the funds sooner than retirement, question mark. So what I wanted to do, I just wanted to kind of open the floor and just talk a little about super. 
so do you do you want to say anything to Lucy just off the back of her question there, Beck? It's possible that that's the reason why they're doing it. There's a few different reasons around use, around timelines, around tax, around knowledge, but it really depends on case by case. I always think it's so interesting that you can actually invest in an identical asset in three or four different locations and what changes is how you report on it or how much tax you pay. Mm. It's it's the best way I think of actually understanding what these different environments look like is to compare, you know, a hypothetical, since we're very pro-Vanguard in this episode, is like Vanguard high growth directly in an investment bond in a super fund, in a company, in a trust, like you put them in different places. It's just tax that changes and reporting. What do you think? Yeah, so obviously preservation is the big thing, but I actually think there's there's one tin hat reason people might have some, um, you know, legislation, government risks and concerns, like, oh, they'll just change the rules. I'll go out, out on a limb to say, even if the governments of the day and future governments change rules in super, they will always make it more advantageous than money outside of super because the whole thing is they want people to put money in to fund their own retirement. So if that is one reason, but I also think a lot of this can be around the not educated enough about the pros and cons of options. Yes, because, and it's just so fascinating, these questions here, in the investing book, I did a heap of different scenarios of different ages and investment strategies. Now, if you're 55 years old or 50 years old and you're looking down 10 years till you could theoretically retire and access it, you might go, yep, 100% going to pump super. If you're 45 years old and maybe you've got kids that are just about to finish school and you don't have to fund them anymore and you're like, oh, yeah, we might do a bit of bit of both. We might do a little bit of salary sacrifice. We might invest in our own name. So back to that comment at the start of the episode where Nalisha said, smash or pass. It's not, it's not all or nothing. It rarely is. Mm. Right. There's so, so many different ways to skin this cat. <laughs> mm. So what options do you have to get money into super? Well, when you're putting money into super, you've got to think about contribution caps. You've got to think about your like where the money's coming from, is it, you know, cash that's chilling out in the bank or is it going to be your regular contribution from your employment? Um, I always like to think about as well, like what you actually have available. A lot of people get caught up in a bit of a tiz around hypotheticals. It's like, but what do you have available to you right now? Because limited options are actually really helpful sometimes. Yeah. So just if we drill down onto this super thing a little bit more, I want you to have a talk about if someone does have super and they might be out of the workforce for a period of time, if they're, you know, doing parental duties and all that, I'll get you to have a bit of a think about that. But one thing I want to say is if, for example, someone was earning enough money to meet the current cap, the concessional contribution cap of 27500 per year, right? And for whatever reason, they got an inheritance or they won lotto and had all this money come in, even though they can put $110,000 in superannuation per year that they can't claim a tax deduction on, you could take the view that, well, I don't need this money now. I may as well put it in super and park it and let it grow in a tax-effective environment. Because mm-hmm. remember, 15% tax rate in super, when, we, re- when we retire, move to pension phase up to the 
the limits, uh, the tax rate is a big donut, nothing, zero. So for me personally, I want to always make sure any leftover money that I don't need right now um, to put into super for mm-hmm. future me. So it's it's a great tool, superannuation, um, for any age or any stage. Talk to us about that example where I'd shared that someone might have taken time out of the workforce or not have the same super balance as their spouse or partner. So super equity is a topic very close to my heart, as you know, Glenn, uh, because also we know across Australia that it's disproportionately affecting women having a lower balance within their couples. So having a conversation about this is such a good place to start and pretending it doesn't exist or, I mean, this goes by extension, even just knowing what your super balance is, it's excellent place to start so that you can make sure your super is healthy, you've got, you know, the best chance of retiring with dignity um, in in your 60s, 70s, whenever that, that comes around for you. But there are actually some really cool options available with getting money into super, um, but it's not going to ha- you're not going to trip over it. You have to actively seek it. Uh, how often are people asking you questions about getting extra money into super, Glenn? <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Look, it doesn't it doesn't come up that much, right? No. It's just not at the front of everyone's mind. Yeah. And the example you gave then was around parental leave, which is probably the big one. Um, second one would be around carer's leave. Third one would be around, say, study breaks or starting your own business where, again, you're just either not earning an income at all or, or not paying yourself into super. Um, so when you think about either of those situations, it could be that one member of a couple is continuing to to earn and one person's getting diddly squat. Um, so you as a as a couple, as a household, need to think about what you're going to do about it. Mm. And what are the main things that people can do about it? Well, we've got to think about a flag before, like what resources you actually have. Do you have extra money to put into super? Yeah. Uh, the reality is for most people, particularly when you're talking about studying, studying a business, carer's leave, rental leave, it's probably coming at a time where you don't have a lot of spare cash floating around. Yeah, and most homes are like $10,000 a week to rent at the moment. So exactly. So you spare money anywhere. Yeah, so you've got two options, which is you chuck extra money in to effectively compensate the person who's not getting super contributions. Second option is you can rebalance the super contributions of the person who is still working uh, has a lovely name called super splitting. And if I had my way, every household in Australia would talk about this over dinner. I honestly, hand on heart, and I'm making that saying, I'm making that expression at the moment, my hand is on my heart or wherever it is, can't find it. Um, I think it is the best kept secret in all of the land. Because if you had one partner working full time, earning hundred grand a year, round numbers, they might get ten grand a year going to their super fund. Take away fifteen hundred dollars, which is their tax. That's seven and a half thousand dollars, just for the years that the other partner isn't working. You can elect to send half of that, send three grand, send t- whatever, split some of it, and make your partner or your spouse's super account be funded while they're not in the workforce. My challenge, if you are a small business or a business and you can do this, and I certainly did it in my business, is when your staff take parental leave, maternity leave and all that stuff, uh, 
continue to fund their superannuation. Mm-hmm. For me, it was in the scheme of our business, not a heap of money. And I really believe that while my staff are on maternity leave, at least as an employee-type benefit, their super wouldn't be left behind for that six months, year or whatever that is. So if you're a business owner, you can get creative with your employee, um, almost like, yeah, employee benefits even. If you're on parental leave in this business, sure, might get to the stage where you're not earning salary because you've used your leave and all that, but will at least still fund your super. Uh, and if the good people of the Australian government are listening, they also should update the paid parental leave system to be paying superannuation on the paid parental leave scheme. Yeah, because it would only be a rounding error, like realistically. Paid parental leave scheme's based off minimum wage. Yeah. So it's not linked to somebody's income anyway. Yeah, it's wild. Uh, any other considerations for maybe someone who is a spouse that's doing home duties or parental duties for a period of time? Have this conversation with your partner. I really challenge any partner to say the words out loud. No, I don't value the contribution you're making to our household by doing this. No, I don't want to give you financial independence or security. Uh, If they do say those words, that's probably a really good flag for another conversation. Um, So have the conversation and and actually make some steps to do something about it and keep doing this for as long as it's relevant because Mm. something like super splitting you do on an annual basis. Um, and if you had parental leave 10 years ago and you're like, oh, whoops, we forgot this or didn't realise it, you can still do it retrospectively. Go to town with your partner. Yeah. Um, so just have the conversation. My husband tried. He really tried to say, no, I don't want to do this. And I said, well, I'm not having this baby. It's not coming out until we've signed this paperwork. So good luck to you, honey. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is the fallacy. If there's someone listening like, oh, I go to work each year, my partner's on leave, I earn 150 grand. You can't earn that money with children if your partner wasn't doing what they do. Mm-hmm. Actually simple. Yeah. So. Look, if you've got a really, um, someone who's really mathematically focused, there's also uh, government have brought in a new really logical reason to explore this conversation because in a couple of years' time there's a new law that comes in which is if your super balance is above $3 million, you're going to have to pay extra tax. So we're all incentivized to make sure as a couple you don't have your spouse or your super balance running away and potentially paying extra tax while um, yours or your partner's is is three-fifths of stuff all. So this is both now a matter of uh, equity, equality and good financial sense. That's right, because in 20 years' time, if the higher income earner super is knocking on three million's door, it's too late to go and put money in the lower income earner's yeah, super. You, so do it now. You can't do a little U-turn on that one. You've, you've, got to, um, you've got to be making these steps now because it's really feasible with, with couples, professional couples who are both earning good money today that one or both of you could be going over that threshold. So take these small and simple steps today. Mm. Do something that future Glenn, future Rebecca is going to thank you for. Absolutely. Uh, before we finish, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we did an episode about super for sole traders. And I don't remember it verbatim. It's just literally come to my head. Someone in the Facebook group mentioned about the entertainment industry and contractors and super. The long and the short of it is there are some industries and engagement things, whether it's the arts or entertainment, 
that if you're a contractor, you're effectively like a deemed employee and there is super due. So I just wanted to flag that. Um, it is probably a, a small, small part of our audience, but just for completeness, I just want to mention that if you are in uh, the arts or entertainment and you contract, just check um, if you've got an industry association, maybe Google ATO super musician or something like that. Uh, but there will be some things where uh, they are deemed as an employee. And that's interesting to note with all these IR laws that are coming out at the moment with minimum pay for uh, delivery drives and whatnot, it'd be inter- interesting to see what happens with that and whether they will just deem uh, Uber drivers and DD and menu flog and all that stuff as an employee. Mm-hmm. So it's a very much watch this space. Well, I've got a bit of a foggy brain today, everyone. I've been unwell and I thank you for your grace with, um, yeah, me today and always. Beck Pritchard, we'll have you on the podcast another day for a chat. Remember, Retire Right is coming out this Thursday. It's relaunching. I want Retire Right and Jess's new podcast, Financially Fierce, to be bigger than This Is Money. Uh, if we can do that, I might be able to stop working. How about that? No. <laughs> But it's just about variety. So, yeah, we'll leave it there. And I haven't forgot about, and I might even ask for Beck's help around doing some episodes around families, budgeting, and all that stuff. So watch this space. Lots going on. The year has well and truly started, and I'm revving up, excuse me, uh, when I get well, um, (laughs) to have a cracking year. So uh, thank you so much for listening. I've been Glenn. You've been real. This has been Beck. Thanks so much, Beck. No worries. <laughs> we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we live and work and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to this podcast. If you are interested in furthering your education around money, your career or property, we have three books that might help. Check out Sort Your Money Out, Sort Your Career Out and Sort Your Property Out. Find these wherever good books are sold or via the link in the podcast show notes. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.